So good evening, everybody, and I want to welcome all of you to our monthly telephone lecture through the Braille Institute, where we talk about different aspects of children's vision. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'm the Consulting Director of Low Vision Education at the Braille Institute, and I'm also the Chief of Low Vision at the Center for the Partially Sighted. And this evening, we're going to be talking about retinopathy of prematurity, uh, a condition that previously was called retrolental fibroplasia, or it had the acronym RLF. But one of the things that we see about this condition, retinopathy of prematurity, is that we see that this is something that is very, very interesting in the sense that in the older days, in the 1940s, ROP was something that was really growing quite rapidly. We were seeing that there were many, many cases of retinopathy of prematurity. And one of the ideas as to why there were so many more children who were born with retinopathy of prematurity was that during this time, there was an increased use of oxygen. When children were born, or if they were born slightly prematurely, they were often placing the children in incubators with higher levels of oxygen. So some of the doctors then hypothesized that maybe there has something to do with the relationship between the amount of oxygen and retinopathy of prematurity. So they performed different studies, and they did find, in fact, that there is a correlation between the amount of oxygen that a premature baby receives and this condition retinopathy of prematurity. But as time goes on, we have also found that oxygen is not... It is not the only factor. There's other factors that are related to retinopathy of prematurity, and we now know that one of the things is the birth weight. When children weigh less than 1,500 grams, we find that they have a higher risk of developing retinopathy of prematurity. We see that children, especially if they're born before 32 weeks gestation, have a higher risk of retinopathy of prematurity. But if they're born before 28 weeks, that really increases the risk of retinopathy of prematurity. For example, there are some situations in which a child might be exposed to too much levels of carbon dioxide. We see that children who have very, very fast heart rate, this is something that may make them more susceptible to retinopathy of prematurity. So what we later found was that in the 1980s, there was another relationship with retinopathy of prematurity, and a lot of doctors hypothesized that the amount of light that a child might be exposed to might be another cause of retinopathy of prematurity. There were a lot of different types of studies that looked at altering the amount of light that was in the room of these newborn babies. And at this point in time, there is no real proof that suggests that the amount of light that's inside the room of a newborn child would cause retinopathy of prematurity. So what we're finding today is that we are actually finding that there are more children being born with retinopathy of prematurity. And this is kind of interesting because when we looked at the data from the 1970s and 1980s, we saw that the number one cause of vision impairment was retinopathy of prematurity. Then, 
During the 1990s and the 2000s and even today, we find that the number one cause of vision impairment is due to neurological vision impairment. This is a condition in which the visual centers of the brain do not process visual information normally. But we're also now seeing that the number of children with retinopathy of prematurity is, again, increasing today. So teachers and therapists and doctors are going to expect to see more cases of retinopathy of prematurity today. So we ask the question, why is it that there are more children that are being diagnosed with retinopathy of prematurity today? Well, the answer to that is that many of these children who 10 years ago would not have survived a premature birth are surviving. We are now seeing children who are born as early as 23, 24 weeks of gestation. These children are surviving, whereas in the past, these children probably wouldn't survive. So the advances in medical technology in the neonatal intensive care units are really at such a level that children who are born very premature are able to survive. And because these very, very young children who usually have a birth weight of less than 1,500 grams and children who are being born prior to 28 weeks, these children are surviving and we are then seeing more of them who do have retinopathy of prematurity. So the first thing that we want to talk about here then is what is retinopathy of prematurity and how does that really impact a child's vision? Well, to truly understand how retinopathy of prematurity affects the vision of a child, we have to kind of go back a little bit to the anatomy. Now, if we visualize an eyeball, we can see how the eye is shaped very similar to that of a marble. And on the very front surface of the eye, we have a transparent tissue called the cornea. Well, light from the world focuses through the cornea, and then it goes into the pupil. Now, the pupil is the black hole that's in the very center of the colored iris of the eye. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you see the colored portion of your eye, and in the very center, there's a black circle. Well, that black circle is merely a hole that allows light from the world and everything we look at to enter the eyeball itself. Immediately behind the pupil, there is a lens called the crystalline lens. And this crystalline lens changes its shape so that the light rays from the world will then focus on the inside of the eye. And the very inside of the eye, it is coated with a tissue that is called the retina. So we could think of it, maybe many of you might remember in Hollywood, California, there was the Cinerama Dome, and this was a movie theater where the screen kind of curved all the way around. Well, the retina is shaped in that similar fashion in which we could think of the retina very similar to the movie screen. And that movie screen is going to be glued on the inside of the eyeball. Or you could imagine trying to take a very, very thin piece of Kleenex, and you're then going to try to glue that on the inside of a ping pong ball or the inside of a marble. It's something that is very, very delicate, but it's very, very important that the retina is there. Now, what the retina does, the retina is the important 
layer of tissue in the eye that is going to allow light to focus on it and it will convert that light into an electrical signal and send it to the brain via the optic nerve. So it's very, very interesting in the way that the retina is made. When we think of the retina, we sort of think of it as maybe a single tissue, like a single piece of Kleenex. But in reality, the retina is really much, much more complicated. It's made up of 10 different layers. So we could almost think of having 10 very, very thin layers of Kleenex all connected together and placed inside the eye. Now, the way that the retina is organized is that there are certain areas. There's a very central area of the retina, and we could think of that very similar to the bullseye on a dartboard. The very center area, this bullseye area of the retina, is called the macula. And the macula consists of cone cells, and the macula is a part of the retina that gives us our ability to see details. We hear a lot of commercials nowadays about macular degeneration, and it talks about how when people have macular degeneration, they lose their ability to read and to see details, to recognize faces, and that's because the macula cells of the retina gives us our detailed vision. So try to picture that the very center of the retina is the bullseye. Now, the entire area that surrounds the bullseye, the rest of the retina, is a very large area of the retina. And this is made up of rod cells. And this portion of the retina gives us our peripheral vision. So the significance of all of this is that when a child has retinopathy of prematurity, the condition may damage the very center region, or it may damage the peripheral region, or it might affect both regions. So as a result, a child who is born with retinopathy of prematurity might have some severe loss of peripheral vision, so their vision might be similar to looking through a straw, and you may have other children where they may be totally blind due to retinopathy of prematurity. So the reason that retinopathy of prematurity occurs, it relates to the growth and the development of blood vessels in the retina. The retina is similar to any other tissue of your body. It needs to have oxygen, and it receives this oxygen through blood vessels. So when a baby is developing in the mother's womb, in the very center region, very near the bullseye or the macular region, there is what is called the optic nerve. And in the optic nerve are blood vessels, which are called retinal arteries and retinal veins. These blood vessels, they come into the eye and then they start to spread and to grow and to migrate across the entire retina. So you can almost visualize that you're looking inside this eyeball, which is like a marble, and maybe you see a couple of little blood vessels just coming right inside the marble. And as that embryo is developing weeks later, you could then see that these blood vessels are then starting to grow and they're spreading to 
different regions of the retina. And what we find is that when the baby is born, typically by a full term of 40 weeks, those blood vessels are all over the retina, so the entire retina is going to receive the blood supply and the nutritional supplements and such that it needs. So what happens when a child is born premature? We find that the child is actually born before these blood vessels have actually grown and distributed the blood and oxygen throughout the retina. So the key point here is that when a child is born before 32 weeks of gestation, we find that these are the children who are born where the blood vessels are not fully grown, and as a result, there's regions of the retina, generally the periphery of the retina, that do not receive the blood supply and the oxygen. So again, the important thing to remember here is that the gestational period, if the child is born before 32 weeks, the retinal blood vessels are not fully grown. Now also, when a child is born premature, we also know that other parts of the child's body are also not fully developed. So we see that many children who are born premature, their lungs are not fully developed, and as a result, many of these children, they need additional oxygen to help them to oxygenate the body and the tissues. So when these children are born premature, they're often placed in an incubator with oxygen. Now the important advancement medically today is that we now have such very, very accurate levels to measure the oxygen, and we could also measure the amount of oxygen that is being distributed throughout the blood that we could control and not give the baby too much oxygen. And similarly, we will not make the mistake of not giving them enough oxygen. One of the concerns, if you don't give them enough oxygen, this is called hypoxia, and this can cause a lot of damage to not only the tissues of the body, but it could also cause significant damage to the brain. And this is why some children who are born with hypoxia, they have neurological vision impairment. Sometimes it might be in the form of cortical blindness or it might be cortical vision impairment, but they may have neurological conditions that affect their vision. So when the child is in the incubator, we need to make certain that they get the appropriate amount of oxygen so that the child can then develop as best as possible. Now the interesting thing that happens when we look at the growth of the blood vessels in the eye for these premature children, it's very important to understand that it's critical, it's absolutely critical that these children are examined in the neonatal intensive care unit by an ophthalmologist as soon as possible. Now the reason for that is because at the time that the child is born, when the ophthalmologist inspects the tissues of the eye, they could then determine how much of the blood vessels have grown. So, for example, we could say that 50% of the blood vessel growth has occurred. Or we might say 75% of the blood vessel growth has occurred. 
so the doctor can look at the baby's eyes and tell how much of the blood vessels have grown and developed. Now, the way that we as eye doctors can look inside the eye is that to examine for retinopathy of prematurity, we usually need to do a couple of things. Number one, we usually are going to use eye drops. And these eye drops are going to dilate the pupil of the eye. And what that does, it allows us to see the entire back area of the retina. If we do not dilate the pupil of the eye, we primarily could see the center of the retina or the bullseye area called the macula. So we might be able to see that area pretty easily, but that is the area that develops the blood vessels first. So we would expect to see blood vessels there. What we really need to do is we really need to see what's going on on the outer edges of the eyeball to see if the blood vessels have grown out that far. So what this means is that, again, we need to put eye drops to look inside the eye. And number two, we use an instrument that is called a binocular indirect ophthalmoscope. And the binocular indirect ophthalmoscope, it's almost like a little helmet type of device that the doctors place on their head, and we could then look inside the retina of that child. Now, when the ophthalmologist or the optometrist looks at the retina of that child, we look at a few things. First of all, we want to see, are there blood vessels there? And we want to see to what area, what area are those blood vessels located? So when we think about the retina looking somewhat like a dartboard, we could almost divide it up into three areas. So we might have area number one, and that would be the middle, the very middle section where we have the bullseye. So just like a a dartboard, imagine that you drew a circle around the the middle section, and that middle area is going to be area one. And then we would draw another circle that is larger than that, and that is then going to be area two. And then area three would be the area on the most outer perimeter of this dartboard. So we could almost visualize the retina being similar to a archery target or to a dartboard where we have three different areas. We have the the very, very middle section, we have the very outer section, and we have the area in between. So what the doctor does when we look inside the eye we will basically state, first of all, the blood vessel growth begins in the very center. So we will say in area one that there is blood vessel growth. Area two, there is blood vessel growth. And we may see that say that in area three that there is not any blood vessels in that area. So it's a way that we could identify how far out did those blood vessels grow. Another thing that we will do is we can also look in these different areas of the retina and we can determine where and how severe is their damage to the blood vessels that are grown. So when these premature babies are born, the blood vessels that are developing in the eye, sometimes that they're abnormal. And we will grade that from grade 1 to grade 5. 
So in grade one, we might see that there's mild abnormalities to these blood vessels. These blood vessels might be leaking mildly. In other words, the blood vessels are leaking blood, and they might be leaking it in a mild degree. So that would be stage one. Okay, You can then have two where it's moderate, three is severe, four is when you're starting to see that there's scar tissue, and in stage five is when it's basically pulling, there's scar tissue that's pulling the retina off of the eyeball itself. So when the doctors are looking inside the eye, that's what they're going to look for. Where are their blood vessels? And in the area where the blood vessels are located, what kinds of damage, what kind of problems are located within those blood vessels. So at a very, very early age when the child is born, the doctor will take a look at that if the child is born premature. Now when the doctor looks at the child and if the doctor then notices that everything looks to be okay for that day, it does not mean, it does not mean that we could relax. And the reason for this is that many times we might see a baby who was born after 26 weeks gestation and we look at the baby's eyes at 26 weeks and then when the child is four weeks old, we will then start to see there's a lot of blood vessels that are leaking or we may see more scar tissue. So the point to this is that while the child is in the hospital, and even during the first few months after the child has gone home, it is important that the child continues to be seen by the doctors so we could determine if the retinopathy of prematurity started. Did the blood vessels start to bleed? Is there scar tissue starting to develop? One of the things that's also very, very interesting is that we find that for most children who have retinopathy of prematurity, we usually tend to see it in the area of about 34 to 35 weeks of gestation. So what I mean by that is let's say that a mother is pregnant and she gives birth to the child at 28 weeks of gestation. Okay, so this baby was born quite prematurely and at 28 weeks, we then take a look at the baby's eyes and the baby's eyes have no bleeding, there's no hemorrhaging, and there's no scarring. Now, if we then look at that child at 32 weeks of gestation and we examine the child for a second time, it may also, again, look as though there is no damage whatsoever. If we then look at that child maybe a week or two weeks later, we may find that there is scar tissue and there's blood leaking inside the retina. So this is a very interesting phenomenon that regardless of how premature the child is born, we often find that the retinopathy of prematurity shows up when the child is right around 34 weeks of gestation. So this is why the retina specialists will really look very carefully right about that gestational time. Now, what happens when a child does begin to have these blood vessels that are leaking? When the child has a blood vessel that is developing and it is abnormal, it then starts to leak. 
And when blood leaks inside the eye, it will have different types of proteins in it that will cause scar tissue. Many times, the blood that leaks, it goes into the vitreous gel. And you might remember from anatomy, if we look at the eyeball, we already talked about how the retina is glued onto the back of the eye, similar to the way that a Kleenex would be glued to the back of a marble, the inside of a marble, or the inside of a ping pong ball. Well, the entire cavity of the eye itself is filled up with a gel substance called the vitreous. And the vitreous is very similar to clear Vaseline, and that is what prevents the eyeball itself from collapsing. If we didn't have the vitreous gel, our eyeball would just collapse. So when the blood vessels begin to leak, the blood is leaking into the vitreous, and this is going to obstruct the child's vision because there's blood inside this normally clear gel. So the child would see blurred. Number two, when the blood is leaking inside the vitreous, it releases factors that causes scar tissue, So we have a bunch of white scar tissue that looks very similar to cotton fibers. And many times we'll see that these cotton fibers will be filling up the inside of the eye. And this is why retinopathy of prematurity was previously called retrolental fibroplasia. Because when you would look inside the pupils of these children's eyes, you could see all of this white scar tissue. And retro means behind, lento means the lens, fibroplasia means the fibrous scar tissue was growing. So if you look at some children with ROP, you could see the white scar tissue that's growing right there behind the lens of the eye. In some cases, if the scarring is so, so diffuse throughout the entire eye, the scar tissue could then grab onto the retina and it will pull the retina completely off the eye, and that is called the retinal detachment. So again, the series of events that causes the vision loss in ROP are that when the retina is developed before all the blood vessels are there, in other words, a child is born before all the blood vessels have been developed, the blood vessels may then leak, and that will then cause the formation of scar tissue, It will also result in more blood vessels being produced, and those new blood vessels release more blood, and we get more scar tissue, so it's sort of a vicious cycle. All of that scar tissue will then obstruct the vision. The blood that's leaking inside the vitreous will obstruct the vision, and the scar tissue can eventually detach the retina. So... Some of the things that are, are done for retinopathy of prematurity from the, from the old days is that one of the things that was done was something called cryotherapy. And cryotherapy was a surgery that was quite complicated where they would use a very cold probe that would freeze the retina. And by freezing the retina in the very outer areas where the blood vessels were not present, they would kill the retina in that area. Now, by killing that area of the retina, the eye would not try to form new blood vessels because if you kill the retina, 
the retina is not asking for more oxygen. And that would stop the formation of blood vessels and it would stop the leakage of blood and it would stop the formation of a lot of scar tissue. Now, when you kill that part of the retina, though, on the very outer edge, it would result in children losing their peripheral vision permanently. These would be kids who don't have good peripheral vision, and they would also develop myopia, or high nearsightedness. But this is something that often saved the sight of a lot of children. Now, this particular type of surgery of cryotherapy would take hours at a time, and it would be very dangerous because you would then have to intubate the child and they would have to really, you know, be under much closer medical care. Well, they later then started to use laser, and the laser would be a way that they could kill a lot of that region of the peripheral retina, but they could do it much quicker. And this is something that today it's used quite frequently where a laser is used to kill some of that peripheral retina and when we see areas of the retina blood vessels that are leaking, they could also use a laser so that those blood vessels don't leak the blood into the eye. Now, one of the things that really is very new, more recent, is the use of a medication now. So today, we can use something that is called Lucentis. Now, Lucentis is a medication that can be injected into the eye in a matter of a minute. So the real nice thing about using the Lucentis is that you don't have to take the child into, you know, the operating room and the child doesn't have to be under anesthesia for hours as a child would be during cryotherapy. And what the Lucentis does, the Lucentis has something that is a anti-VEGF. And basically what that means, it's an anti vascular endothelial growth factor. What it means is that this is a medication that will stop the formation of these leaky blood vessels. It tells the eye to stop making all of these blood vessels that are leaking. And when you do that, it eliminates blood filling up the eye. It eliminates the formation of scar tissue. And as they have studied children with this particular treatment of Lucentis and comparing it to the use of laser or cryo, they are finding that the Lucentis injection into the eye is much, much more effective for children who do have these particular levels of retinopathy of prematurity. So the way that this is done is that the doctors could simply use a little anesthetic eye drop on the eye and they will go ahead and then inject that Lucentis right into the vitreous gel, and that has really been something that seems to be uh, protecting the baby's eye from forming more blood vessels so that we don't get more leakage of blood and more scar tissue, and hence, it really reduces the chance of the retinal detachment. So the biggest advancement in medical treatment for ROP right now is that if we do identify the ROP at an early stage. We can then use something such as Lucentis by injecting it right into the eye, and that will prevent the formation of these blood vessels that leak. So that is really, really very, very amazing. Another thing that we also have to think about is that what if there's a child 
who just happens to have a very, very severe, very severe hemorrhage, okay? Let's say that the child is born after 26 weeks and the ophthalmologist looks at the baby's eyes. The baby's eyes look okay. There's no leaky blood vessels. There's no scarring and there's no pulling on the retina. Well, the doctors say, I'll come back and take a look at this baby in two weeks. And when the doctor comes back in two weeks, the doctor notices that the entire eye is filled up with a lot of blood. That's because there was a blood vessel that did develop and it leaked and there's severe bleeding and and the vitreous is just clouded with blood. Now, these children can't see because there's so much blood in the vitreous gel. Well, we know that we want to try to improve that child's vision as quickly as we can and one of the procedures that the ophthalmologist will do is what's called the vitrectomy. And you spell that V-I-T-R-E-C-T-O-M-Y. What the vitrectomy means is that you're going to perform a surgical procedure and the part of the Vaseline gel that is stained with blood, you're simply going to cut it out. It's almost like you opened up the bottle of Vaseline and you got a little scooper and you scooped out the dirty part of the Vaseline. Now this is something that allows the light from the world to enter the retina and it helps to stimulate vision very, very well. Now with the vitrectomy surgery, we now see that the ophthalmologists have many more procedures that make this procedure much, much more effective. They have different procedures where they could use different thickness needles and they could cut out this type of Vaseline gel. You know, it's it's thick enough where it feels like Vaseline or almost like honeycomb, so you could cut it and scoop it out. And it's something that is quite successful. Now, many children who do have to have the vitrectomy, during the procedure of the vitrectomy, the natural lens of the eye, the crystalline lens of the eye is removed. That crystalline lens has to be removed so that they could remove the vitreous and also, in many cases, when you do perform these types of surgeries, the lens will become clouded. So very often, the doctor will then perform a cataract surgery or a lensectomy at the same time as the vitrectomy. And we're now finding that many of the ophthalmologists are inserting a artificial implant lens in the eye at that time. So this is another major medical advancement because... It gives the child better optics. By implanting the artificial implant lens, the power that is needed to focus the light from the world onto the retina, the doctors could do a very, very precise job with that, and the child doesn't have to then wear Coke bottle glasses. The advantage of the intraocular lens compared to the Coke bottle glasses is that you get a sharper image, you have less distortion, and there's really no prism effect. So in other words, if a child needs a vitrectomy for the right eye but not the left eye, by inserting an artificial lens implant, the child probably won't get double vision that way because of the use of the implant. So we're now seeing more and more of the surgeons implanting the eye with artificial lens implant at an earlier age, whereas 10 years ago, 
we would very rarely ever see an infant who had the vitrectomy and a lensectomy have the artificial lens implant. So that's also something that's very, very good. Another thing that we have uh, seen that's a real major medical advancement is that we have other types of instrumentation now, which are called ultrasound, and we could do what are called A scans and B scans. And for a very young infant, this allows the doctors to determine the child's prescription much more accurate at a very young age. So as a result, if a child is going to have these types of surgeries, the ophthalmologist can identify the, the best prescription lens available. Now, another thing that we're seeing that ophthalmologists and optometrists are able to do is that we're also able to identify when a child who is born premature has glaucoma much earlier. In the past, it was often difficult to measure the pressure of the eye of a child. You couldn't really put them in the same equipment that we do for an adult because they wouldn't sit still or they wouldn't keep their eyes still. Or sometimes when we would measure the pressure of the eye, we would have to put our finger and press on the eye and we would have to try to feel. Does it feel hard, medium, or soft? But there's now new equipment where we can basically put a little probe that is like a Q-tip and then when it taps the eye, we can measure their pressure. As a result, we could find a child who has high pressure. Many people don't realize that children born premature have a much higher propensity of developing glaucoma. And because most people don't know this, many children never get their eye pressure checked. So we want to go ahead and have that particular type of eye pressure check test in addition at the same time. And children who are in the hospitals, the neonatal intensive care unit, they usually are getting all of these tests. They're getting the dilated eye exam. They're getting their prescription measured. They're getting the glaucoma testing, and they're getting frequent follow-up appointments scheduled. So these are some of the most common types of medical advances that we're seeing. And when the child is then released, we're seeing that most children are now being seen by low-vision optometrists. And the low-vision optometrists also have a lot of new different treatments. For example, we are recommending vision stimulation at a much earlier age. And as you might have heard on some of our previous podcasts that you could listen to, there's many different visual stimulation activities from the use of a light box. We're finding that people are now using a lot of the applications for the iPad. People are making their own high-contrast toys or they're using mylar pom-poms and other types of toys to stimulate the development of a child's vision. But we also see that for children with ROP, they often need very, very, very powerful glasses, and we now have the ability to make these very, very powerful glasses much thinner, so it's more comfortable for the child to wear. Many children who are born premature will tend to have a crossed or a misaligned eye, and we are now able to measure the misalignment of the eye and prescribe a prism so that the brain will receive information from both eyes. This helps us because it eliminates the need to do patching, as we used to have to patch one eye for hours at a time. We can now use prism lenses, and that will assure us that the brain is receiving st 
stimulation from both eyes, and that develops maximal vision. We have new lenses that can convert from clear to many different colors. Before, it would only turn into brown or gray, but we now have some that can convert into a high-contrast yellow, high-contrast amber, and also a different type of a plum color. So even in the field of optics, we have better lenses that are thinner and lighter. We have prisms. We have other types of frames that are going to be much more comfortable for the kids. And now we also have different types of contact lenses that we could use. So overall, there's a lot of new medical treatments that we can use for the children with ROP. So at this time, let's go ahead and let's open it up to any questions you may have. We have about 10 minutes left. And if you would unmute your phone by pressing star 6 and be happy to take any question that you might have. Okay, go ahead, Sue. Do you have a question? So I just had a comment. I, I was I had a question, comment regarding um, the zone areas, um, the, the areas of, of, of affect. Um, and so, in essence, with the areas, of, the, the area, the first area, zone one or, or area one, is the area where we be, be most most concerned about the child's um, overall vision loss. Yeah, so what we want to do is we want to be able to tell everybody and communicate with other doctors and parents and therapists and teachers where is the area that we have the problem. Mm -hmm. So area or zone one is the area that's in the centermost region of the retina. So if Mm -hmm. you were to think that you had a archery target, the first circle that you put in the very centermost area, that would be area one. Okay. And then if you draw another circle that is larger than the first one, then you now have a middle area. That will be area two, and then you have area three. Okay. Yeah, and part of that question is sometimes with those medical reports and you see those see that kind of um, um, diagramming and such, and, and it's just helpful to have, like I said, this kind of information is helpful to be, to be able to kind of help to um, give this, you know, talk about the information with the family a bit when you see, just to go through the medical report with them and be able to formulate the questions that they might have for the doctor to clarify yes. these things. Yes, Thank and you. most in most cases, if you were to ask where, what area is most of the damage occurring, mm-hmm. it usually is in the most peripheral area of the retina, the farthest okay. away from the bullseye. And the reason for that is because the blood vessels Remember, they grow and they start to grow in the center first. Center first. And then they go out toward the edges. Right. So very often the outer areas, the outer peripheral regions, are the regions that do not get sufficient oxygen. And as a result, those peripheral retinal cells will often die. In -hmm. other cases, for the purposes of saving the remaining vision of the eye, the surgeons will kill that peripheral region so that more blood vessels don't grow. Mm-hmm. And this is why children with ROP, if we look at them functionally, they usually are going to have worse peripheral vision and better central vision. Mm-hmm. So just as a general rule, most children with ROP, they will have poorer peripheral vision and stronger central vision. So as a result, when these kids are walking, 
they may not see a pole that's on their extreme right or left. Or they might drop a quarter on the floor and they don't see it when it's right by their feet. They often will have very poor night vision because the peripheral retina is responsible for our night vision. Mm -hmm. But their central vision might be quite good. So these are the kids that may enjoy reading a book and looking at other small details using their central vision. You often will see kids who have ROP, and these little babies, they will put their fingers right in front of their eyes, and they will wiggle the fingers, and they'll just stare at their fingers wiggling. They use their central vision in that way. Okay. Yeah. Does, does ROP... In, in, in some cases, will ROP always be part of a child's diagnosis? I mean, I've heard it never actually is, it never, it, it doesn't seem to resolve. It, it, the person who has ROP, even if their condition and medical treatments are irresponsive to medical treatments, they will always have ROP. Is that, is that a true, true statement? Yeah, I would say yes. I, I think that the question that um, is, is if a child has been diagnosed with ROP, will that always be visible within the child's eyes, even as an adult? And the answer is yes. Okay. So let's say that we have a child. Here, here's two interesting cases. Let's say that we have identical twins, and they're both born after 26 weeks gestation. Okay, they're identical twins and they're both born after 26 weeks gestation. At the time of 30 weeks, okay, when the child's maybe five weeks old, mm -hmm. twin A develops leaking blood vessels and their scar tissue, and the child is diagnosed with ROP. The twin B, the retina is perfectly fine. At that same age, the ophthalmologist looks at that child, and that child's eyes perfectly fine. When these two twins are discharged, twin A will have a diagnosis of ROP. Mm -hmm. Twin B will not have a diagnosis of ROP. Now, mm -hmm. let's say that that child is now 10 years old and he sees, you know, another doctor in a different state. Now, when that doctor looks at twin A's eyes, the doctor will still be able to see that there was ROP so the child would still have the diagnosis of ROP. And okay. twin B, there would be no observable evidence of that, so that child would not have it. Okay. Now, what's a very important thing for all of you teachers and parents out there to remember is that a child who has ROP is at a high risk of developing other eye problems even mm -hmm. after they have been brought home. So let's say that for the first year you go and you take your baby to see the ophthalmologist every month as they have instructed, and now the child is three years old and four years old, and you think, well, I guess I don't need to go because doctor said everything looks pretty good, and that's wrong. Because children with ROP, I believe it's about 12% of them will develop glaucoma. Hmm. So they need to be examined for glaucoma. They have a high risk of developing retinal detachment. So they have to be evaluated for retinal detachment. And children who are in elementary school age will also have a high probability 
of developing a misaligned eye that could cause double vision and interfere with their depth perception and their reading and writing. So the children with ROP should continue to be seen by their eye doctors. And one of the reasons why the doctors will continue to write that diagnosis of ROP is because it also will let other doctors and others in the future know that we got to keep a close eye on this child because he did have ROP. Okay. Yes, hi. Hi, it's Leslie Bailiff from Sacramento area. Hi. Um, I I often see and hear in the orientation mobility world um, about the spatial issues that are related to some kids that have ROP. So I guess my first question is, is um, typically does the severity of ROP, like kids that have no light perception, do they tend to have more spatial issues or are the spatial issues related to something else in addition to the ROP? Yeah, that's a really good question. And a lot of people will use these terms a little bit differently, but one of the terms that um, we use in the field of optometry is called visual-spatial perception. And visual-spatial perception is a cognitive skill that takes place in the occipital and parietal lobes of the brain. So what we find is that there can be two different children who have the same level of vision and their visual spatial perception could be very different. For example, you could have two children who are totally blind due to ROP and retinal detachment. Let's say we have two children and they both are born premature at 26 weeks and unfortunately they both suffer from retinal detachments and they're totally blind. One child might learn to navigate within the classroom or at the school very quickly and the other child will have tremendous difficulty. The reason for this is that the child who has more difficulty has more visual spatial perception problems. And that most likely is related to that many children who are born premature, they suffer from intraventricular hemorrhaging in the brain, or they may also have periventricular leukomalacia to the brain. And these particular types of neurological conditions affect the region of the brain that gives us our visual perception. Now, for another person who may have always been born blind, that part of the brain might actually be better than normal. And these are some of these students who are totally blind, and they could learn the school in a very, very short time. I, I, I learned, you know, by seeing patients who were exactly like this, where they could go to the convention centers and they could map out the hotel so quickly, even though they had no vision. And it's because their visual spatial perception is, is very, very strong, that part of the brain. Whereas with other children who are either A, born premature, may have suffered from neurological damage, or B, a child who has cortical vision impairment, and that part of the brain did not receive enough oxygen, they may have these visual perception weaknesses. So then, so then, would that child also be diagnosed with like a, you know, like a neurological visual impairment also? No, not necessarily neurological vision impairment, but they may be diagnosed as having a visual spatial perception problem. And I'm curious at how that's diagnosed. 
And there are different educational psychologists who will perform this type of testing. Many times we will see that there are children who may have very, very significant difficulties performing spatial tasks. For example, you give them their shoes to put on and they cannot figure out which shoe goes on which foot. You give them the cap to the toothpaste container and they cannot figure how that fits. Or you might give them pots and pans in the lids and they cannot figure out which lid matches. This whole sense Mm -hmm. of size and space is, Mm -hmm. is something that's very, very difficult. Now, there are even children who are fully sighted. This could be a child or an adult who is fully sighted that may have a condition that is called NLD, nonverbal learning disabilities. These are children that could read everything on the eye chart. They have perfect color vision, perfect peripheral vision, but if you ask them to put something together, they just simply cannot do that. It could be something as simple as asking them to stack a bunch of Dixie cups, you know, one inside of each other, and they're rotating it, they're tumbling it, they just cannot figure that out. So children who are blind and children who are fully sighted may also have something that is called nonverbal learning disability. Another characteristic of the child with nonverbal learning disability is that they have very, very strong verbal skills. They may speak like a, an adult at three years of age, but they often speak in a monotone voice. I remember I had a patient, he was about three years old, and he came in, good morning, Dr. Bill, my name is Benjamin, I'm here to get my eyes checked, how are you, are you married, do you have any children? He spoke just like that, it was really impressive but also strange. But he had no sense of space because when he would come to talk to you, he would get right in your face. And at school, he would not know how to give other children enough space. And so one of the things that the parents thought, well, is this some form of autism? But we we were able to, we suspected that it was nonverbal learning disability. We referred to a neuropsychologist who then confirmed that diagnosis. So those kids will very often have difficulties in mathematics. They have difficulties with social relationships. If a child is visually impaired with NLD, these are the kids who often have more difficulty utilizing their hands and their spatial skills to learn to do things uh, with with their other perception skills. Thank you so much. Yes. Dr. Bill? Yes. Uh, This is Debbie Martin from Sacramento. I had a question about the prisms that you were talking about using it instead of patching. Yes. Um, Is that it specifically for ROP or is that for other uh, amblyopia and other such reasons to do patching? Yeah, well, you know what? The question is uh, using prism glasses for children. Now, we say that we see that many children who are born will often have eyes that are misaligned. And in many cases, we don't want to recommend eye muscle surgery during the first year of life because it's quite common that children will have difficulty coordinating their eyes during the first year. Now, when a child has misaligned eyes, 
there may be cases in which the child only uses the right eye and the brain turns off the left eye. So in a case like that, we used to always recommend that we would patch the right eye and force the baby to use the weaker eye. But what we often now find is that another very effective technique is that we can use a prism lens, and when the child has the prism glasses on, the child is then using both eyes simultaneously. And this is very helpful because then it allows the part of the brain that coordinates both eyes together to develop. Okay. Um, are prisms only in glasses or can, can they be in contact lenses? Uh, for the child who has a misaligned eye, it's always going to be in glasses. But if a child is wearing, let's say that you have a child who has ROP and the child had a vitrectomy where they had to remove the natural lens. Now, this child has now been fit with a contact lens for both eyes, but you notice that the eyes are misaligned. You can still fit a prism lens in glasses and put them over on top of the contacts, and in this way the child will be using both eyes, and this this will eliminate the need for us to do the bandage patching, which is often uncomfortable for these kids. Okay, thank you. Yes. Okay, let's see. Are there any other questions? Well, I have a question. This is Amy about the the risk for glaucoma and myopia and misalignment. Does that um, stop at a certain age? I know you said at elementary age kids are still at risk for misaligned eyes, but at some point, are they no longer at risk? Yes. What we find is that the misalignment of the eyes, we really observe the misalignment of the eye to be occurring typically during elementary school years. If the eyes remain straight through elementary school, very rarely find that the eye will then start to become misaligned. But the risk for the retinal detachment and the glaucoma, that -hmm. is something that we will watch throughout their life. And just like any other patient, any other adult, any other child, Uh, they really should still have their eyes checked each year. But the reason that we say for the child with ROP, we want the doctors to be a little bit more aware of it, is that many doctors who examine children, they do not routinely check for glaucoma in children because it's Mm -hmm. not as common. Mm -hmm. And then many doctors who examine children, they also do not dilate the pupils of the eyes of the children to check for retinal detachment. So if your child that you are working with or if it's your own child was born premature, each year that the child goes to see the eye doctor, you want to request those special tests to make certain that the doctors just don't get lazy and say, well, no, I don't do it routinely because most kids never have this problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bill, this is Julie. I have a question, I think. Um, you had mentioned that doctors now are opting to do the artificial lens versus having the children have eye, the, the real thick lenses. Um, how high is the rejection rate on that as far as having the children be so young and the eye still developing? Is, do, you know, do you have any information on that? And how soon will the children have to have that surgery or, if at all, have to have that done again? the artificial lenses. 
Yes. So the question is about the implants that are being performed. When, when many children are receiving the lensectomy, where the lenses of the eyes are removed, we are seeing that more and more doctors are implanting the artificial lens implant. And the question is, what are the statistics about rejection? To be quite honest, I don't know. And that'll be a good question when we speak about this next month with our other doctors that are going to be joining us to see what is the rejection rate. As far as if a child does have a lens implant, is it required that there has to be the lens removed and another implant put in? And that is not absolutely necessary. Um, What often happens is that as the child's eyes grow, we often will fit glasses to compensate for the new power that's needed. And because almost every child who has a lens implant is going to need to wear glasses, uh, many times we will just modify the glasses prescription rather than to put the child through another surgery. So next month we could go ahead and ask more questions about the safety and efficacy of these types of uh, lens implants. But what I observe is that the lens implant is used most frequently when either A, the child cannot tolerate a contact lens, and B, when the child needs the lens for just one eye. In other words, if a child has had the cataract or the lens removed only in one eye, that is more often when they're going to recommend the lens implant. So I want to thank all of you for joining, and this podcast is being recorded by Ayers LA, so you could listen to this at www.airsla, that's A-I-R-S-L-A dot org, and if you click the link that says Vision, and then you'll see a table, click the Braille Institute. You could also get it directly from the Braille Institute webpage at www.airsla.org brailleinstitute.org. So we hope that all of you have a, a wonderful, wonderful holiday season, and we'll see all of you back, hopefully, on the second Tuesday in January 